So namaste to all of you and good evening. We are continuing this evening our readings from the chapter number four of the Gita, where we get through the introductory verses to the question which Arjuna has to ask, because he doesn't understand how does Krishna, where, the, where is the logics of the fact that Krishna claims that he taught himself this yoga, which he now teaches to Arjuna, thousands of years before to Manu and other Vivashvat and other great sages of the Indian tradition. And Krishna answers straight, and that of course is one of the great foundational theological bases in the whole of India, of the theories on reincarnation, on living lives, where in the shloka, in the verse number 5, Krishna says, Many births have passed for me and for you also, O Arjuna. I know them all, but you know them not, O scorcher of enemies. The verse is clear in itself. Of course, we could go from here into comments about how many lives have passed, how come that some people know all those lives and some people have no idea of the lives, where are they stored in the collective mind or in the individual subconscious mind, in what layers, how come that Buddha can remember his life just five minutes before he hits Nirvana, how comes that Krishna says, I remember them all, and Arjuna says, you know them not. Here the implication is very clear, the regular human being does not remember even one extra lifetime. Because if you would remember one, then it, you would be liable to remember more. If there is one, then why not two? Then why not three? Where would the limit be? That's why here, of course, the law of nature is clear. Once you open that gate, they start flowing like pearls on a string. If you can remember one, then you can remember two. If you can remember two, then you can remember all of them. It's as simple as that. And that is why... Of course, human beings may have a glimpse. There may be people who say, oh, I think in my previous life I was a man or a woman. Or, but that's very vague. That's very, it's based on some circumstantial evidence such as my temperament, some other features. And it does not tell the whole truth. And this to know your births, of course, is not about just knowing a thousand telenovelas. It's not about knowing the, the story of 10,000 lifetimes. It is about extracting the spiritual essence from those 10,000 lifetimes and uh, the knowledge, the spiritual knowledge which comes with them. We read in the research made by Raymond Moody by people having near-death experience that as they meet with that being of light which is supposedly an angel, that being of light asks them, what have you done with your life? They have a survey of their lives and from that survey they remember just some key points. They remember just some very important, significant points which have to do with selflessness, which have to do with other uh, elements such as enriching of the spirit, generally things of spiritual development. So it's obvious here that this remembrance of the previous lives is a matter of level of consciousness. If Krishna and Buddha remember their previous lives, 
The thing which they have in common is the fact that they have reached the consciousness of the crown chakra. They have reached the consciousness of full enlightenment. Therefore, um, here the things are as clear as they can get. And actually Krishna continues with more profound ideas. But remember, this is to be taken as a distinction that some people do remember, very few, and some people do not remember at all. And Krishna continues in the shloka number six. <clears throat> though I am unborn and of imperishable nature, though Lord of all beings, yet remaining in my own nature, I take birth through my own power of creation. Here, we have a truth which is of a divine nature, because here Krishna defines himself not as a human being. In the previous shloka, you could say, okay, this is a human being like Buddha, who has reached to the final destination and thus knows it. But actually, Krishna puts it in a totally different way in shloka number six. He says, though I am unborn, well, if you are unborn, then you can not be born and dead and born and dead and born and dead. Therefore, if Krishna proclaims himself unborn, Aja in Sanskrit, Aja is the name for Atman, it is the name for God. And therefore, when Krishna says, I am unborn, that's exactly as Jesus would say, I and God are one and the same. That is why Jesus, like Krishna, and Krishna, like Jesus, they are not considered one of us. These are the ones, the exactly the very few ones that make the difference. Krishna says, although I am unborn, which means in this cosmic cycle, I'm God. I'm of the nature of God. I'm not part of the game down here. And of imperishable nature, that just emphasizes it. Krishna says, I am Atman. I am of imperishable nature. What is of imperishable nature? Only the spirit is of imperishable nature. Only the Shiva consciousness, as in, called in Kashmiri Shaivas, is of imperishable nature. So Krishna says, although I am God, that's what he says, though Lord of all beings, he pushes, he ups the stakes. Because you can say, okay, you are of a divine nature and nobody has seen you, nobody has heard about you. You are some sort of very strange, unborn, imperishable spirit, which comes, but he says, Lord of all beings. This is Ishvara. This is God already. So Krishna ups the stakes. He says, although I am unborn, although I am of imperishable nature, although I am Lord of all creatures, so I am God, actually. Yet remaining in my own nature, so he means also not changing my nature, like doing some sort of hocus pocus and forgetting that in any way, or getting transformed, mutated, transmogrived in any funny way. Although all those are true, I take birth through my own power of creation. Usually people take birth through karma. It is karma which makes people being born, and thus the laws of the universe. But God cannot be born in the universe through karma, because there is no karma attaching the divine consciousness. That is why Krishna explains and he says, I am unborn, imperishable, more than that, Lord of all creatures, God therefore, 
God endowed with Godhead, and yet remaining that, without changing that, I take birth through my own power of creation. My, his own power of creation is translated very often as Maya. The Maya, because that's a very specific concept to Vishnu. I'm coming back to that in a second. So he says, I am born through my own Maya. If you take it in a Vedantic way, it would say like, well, in an illusion, I can produce a bit of an extra illusion. This is a dream in a dream. It's an appendix to the universe. The universe is a Fata Morgana, and I create a bit of an appendum, addendum to the Fata Morgana, in which lo, here is also me, Vishnu, among the people. What's the universe? A Maya. What does it take for God to change that Maya? A little bit more of Maya. Just modifying the cosmic dream in such a way that lo, I am among them. Therefore, by saying, though I am unborn of imperishable nature, though I am the Lord of all beings, yet ruling over my own nature, like not being taken out of my divine condition, I am born by my own Maya. I want to remind here that this concept of God, Lord of all beings and so on, applies in the Hindu mysticism, however, to that aspect of God which is called Vishnu. Like traditionally in India, Krishna is considered to be one of the nine incarnations of Vishnu that have happened in this cosmic cycle. And the tenth of them, called in Hindu mysticism Kalki Avatara, is yet to come. Some people expect that Kalki Avatara will come soon because we are in the end of Kali Yuga. Some people say that's wishful thinking, apocalyptic thinking, doomsday, eschatological thinking. Everybody thinks it's the doomsday and the end of the world in their lifetimes. Therefore, it might be that the whole thing will happen in 300 years or in 3,500 years. And yet, everybody agrees, Kalki Avatara, the tenth and final incarnation of Vishnu in this cycle, will be there. By necessity, the tenth incarnation of Vishnu, the tenth Avatara, is supposed to happen in the very end of days, which is the synchronicity with all the traditions. Imam Mahdi, the Imam of, the lost Imam of Islam will come in the end of days. Jesus will have his coming, his second coming in the end of days. The Jewish Messiah, for those who believe that Jesus was not the Messiah, will come in the end of days. Kalki Avatara will come in the end of Kali Yuga. And last but not least, Buddha Maitreya, the Buddha of the new age, of the final age, will also come the final incarnation of Buddha in this all cosmic cycle. We have at least five major religious traditions which say in the end of days there is the final manifestation of Godhead. Are all those five the same? Are all those five going to appear as separate entities? Of course nobody can answer that question. If we are going to see together Kalki Avatara and Jesus Christ walking hand in hand or if there will be just one divine manifestation which will represent all five of them, and everybody will take what they can, and perhaps a little bit of wisdom, so as to stop fighting with each other for foolish divisions and for foolish differentiations. But fact is that Krishna, he says, I am Vishnu, I am, and Vishnu is the Lord of preservation, and this world, from a certain standpoint, if you don't think about it metaphysically, as in Kashmiri Shaivas, the world was created long time ago. The world is going to be destroyed 
further on in the Mahapralaya, dissolved, dissoluted, and right now we are in between those. So now is the time of Vishnu. In the beginning was the time of Brahma. In the end there will be the day of Shiva. And today is the time of Vishnu. There is the possibility, of course, while creation, preservation and dissolutions, <coughs> dissolution happen simultaneously at all time, every second. Nevertheless, in a more simplified way, this also is a parallel thing. You remember that these truths, the spiritual metaphysical truths, can be interpreted and expressed and understood on several levels simultaneously. This is one of the simultaneous levels. That if in the beginning there was Brahma, in the end there will be Shiva, in the middle you have Vishnu. And that's why who is the Lord of all creatures right now while well, the universe still floats? It's Vishnu. That's why Vishnu can say, well, right now I'm God. When maybe I'll pass the, uh, the torch to Shiva, that will be the day of Shiva. But until that time, I am fulfilling the, um, the function. Again, this is a Hinduistic view upon it, and it is acceptable as well. Thus, once more, he says, although I am born imperishable of nature, lord of all beings, and remaining in my own nature, mastering my own nature, like not losing myself, I take birth through my own maya, through my own power of creation. Maya is the power to create dreams. It's the power to create virtual realities such as this one as well. So here, this is the shloka which allows in metaphysics and in Hindu mysticism to define the concept of avatara. Two of the next shlokas also contribute to this concept, like they enlarge on it, they dwell on it, but this is the first one. The divine nature, without any transformation, can hijack a human body, not hijack it in the meaning taking it from someone else, but simply allot it to themselves, simply claim it and manifest through that body. Yes, that body will be a baby which will be born like even Jesus was born out of the womb of a mother. There are stories about immaculate conception and a lot of other things. They may be true or not, that doesn't matter. Fact is that Jesus is born as a baby. He suckles milk for six months. He grows up slowly, slowly. He learns to walk. He learns to talk. And slowly, slowly he becomes a human being. Although the spirit enlivening that piece of flesh is not the spirit of you and I. It's not the spirit of a citizen of the earth. It's the spirit of a visitor from above. If you are going to ask yourself, isn't God too big to enter into a just a human body? You are of course wrong because you don't understand the mathematics of the infinite. The millionth part of the infinite is still infinite. Infinite plus infinite equals infinite. Infinite minus infinite sometimes equals minus infinite, sometimes equals zero, and sometimes equals infinite. And thus the mathematics of the infinite is not like the common sense from the daily life, that God is too big and occupies the whole universe, and how can the divine consciousness then jam in just a body made of flesh and blood? There is no quantitative, this is a space illusion, is a space-dominated illusion. <coughs> And then he continues hard. Whenever dharma is in decay and adharma flourishes, O Bharata, then I manifest myself or I create myself. It's the same thing. That is the second major shloka 
for defining the nature of avatars, all the avatars, not only Krishna, all of them have the same divine law at basis. The first of them is I am imperishable, eternal, divine, Lord of all beings and yet manifest, without any change in my nature. And the second of them is when Dharma is in decay and Adharma flourishes. It's like a seesaw. Here Krishna would not make any compromise. Like, yeah, Dharma, for those of you who don't understand, is very much like in Buddhism. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Dharma is the teaching of the Buddha. And it means basically the Buddhist religious. The Buddhist Dharma is the Buddhist religion. In India, the word Dharma was used much more largely, not like one religion, but like all the religions. The Hindus, echoing the myth of the Tower of Babel, from the Bible, where people were one nation, speaking one language and having one God, and then they slid into arrogance and therefore into demonism and ignorance, and they were trying to build a tower of all things, the Eiffel Tower, the pyramids, the equivalent of that, some stupid megalithic monument, as a symbol of something foolish, <clears throat> and then they lost union, they, their languages got garbled and mixed up, and because they couldn't understand each other, they started war, strife, dissension, and all the rest. That's an excellent myth, which basically talks to us about the primordial oneness. That primordial oneness in Hinduism is called Sanatana Dharma. Today, egocentric Hindus, they say Sanatana Dharma means Hinduism. Like Hinduism is the eternal Dharma. Sanatana means eternal. Like putting the other down and making Hinduism the best. But the origins or the explanation of this word is much deeper. Because if you can read metaphysics and see that the old meaning of Sanatana Dharma is that before the separate Dharmas, there was one Dharma. A sort of a religion of truth. It's true that Hinduism has preserved that spirit. That's why the Theosophists took from the Hindus this dictum from the sages, from the Brahmins of Varanasi, which said, and we are writing on all the theosophical books, which was saying there is no religion higher than truth. The ultimate religion is the truth, like the scientific truth. One religion says there is reincarnation, one religion says there is no reincarnation. They all can be white lies or truths or something, but eventually a scientist would want to know the truth. Therefore, the ultimate religion is the one which expresses the truth. Today, it can be that Hinduism expresses a part of the truth but gets confused in what concerns another part of the truth. It can be that Islam expresses a part of the truth and gets confused in what concerns another part of the truth. Of course, the fanatic adherence to every religion consider that their religion expresses 100% the truth and everybody else is phased out, everybody else is deluded and doesn't know what they are talking about. A more correct understanding of the Tower of Babel would mean that everybody took a piece of the puzzle, but not everybody has got it all. And thus, there is Dharma in the general meaning, Dharma in the meaning in which Krishna uses it, it's not the Hindu Dharma. Whenever Dharma is indicated, it means all the Dharma. It means the religiousness, or if you prefer a more Bible-like way, the righteousness among human beings. Dharma in Satya Yuga, in the Golden Age, says, say different texts of wisdom, 
is like a cow standing firmly on all its four legs. In Treta Yuga, Dharma becomes like a cow limping, standing on three legs. It can still stand, but it's not its, its complete self. In Dvapara Yuga, the, silver, I'm sorry, the Bronze Age of Humanity, Dharma is like a cow standing on two legs. God knows how cows can lift on two legs, but not for long. It's a very precarious balance, and it's almost the end of all of it. And in Kali Yuga, karma is standing on one, I'm sorry, Dharma is standing on one leg. Like religion stands only by a miracle in Kali Yuga, because everybody is selfish, materialistic, demonic, destructive, and where do you have any Dharma? You can see it manifesting in the world of religion as well, precisely through this confusion and ugliness which appears in the religion of modern times with all the fanaticism, destructive killing, violence, and all that. And therefore, <clears throat> Krishna says, whenever Dharma is in decay, and Adharma flourishes. When the light decreases, the darkness increases. Adharma is non-religiousness. It can be sometimes translated as sin, simply because sin is the result of Adharma. A human being living in Dharma commits no sin. A human being who is very weak in Dharma, like doesn't believe in any spiritual metaphysical, religious things, such a human being automatically is prone to sin because of spiritual indifference. Like, ah, it doesn't matter if you do that. God will not punish you. There is no God who reacts in a snappy way anymore and da, da, da. This is adharma. It's the lack of dharma. It's not living it like an intense thing. It's like a present thing. It's living it like more like a lip service, like a theory. And Krishna is adamant about it because there are people who say, I don't practice Dharma, but I'm not an evil person either. Jesus disagrees. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. It's as simple as that. Even Ruskin, the British philosopher in the 19th century, he says, if you don't give God the first place in your life, you don't give God any place. God can have only the first place or nothing. You cannot say, first comes my family and my children, and then God. Then you don't love God. You love God only when God comes first. Before your family, before your children, before your lover, before your parents, before anything else. God can have only the first place. Nothing else. And people who say, well, I'm not that spiritual. I love my family and then I also love God. Then Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me, unfortunately. You think in your mind that you can compromise it. But it's a seesaw. When the light turns off, the shadow goes forth. There is no way not to go there. That's one of the major tricks of some Luciferian philosophers of modern times, such as in the famous philosophy which dominates the philosophy of the European Union and other political and... Uh, other philosophical movements of the 19th and 20th century, which is called very cleverly, smart, devilish, way humanism. Like there are people, Allah Jean Paul Sartre and the others, who say, I don't believe in God and I'm not worshipping the devil as well. I believe in the human being. 
To believe in the human being is not to be with God and therefore it is to be with the devil. It is called Luciferianism, that the human being can manage without God. You can put God aside and you can still manage. There isn't. If you are not with me, you are against me. When the Dharma diminishes, the resultant is our Dharma. There are not three positions on that switch. It's a switch with two positions, on and off. When it has gone from on, it goes to off. There is no midpoint in that. It's the yin and yang. It's like a seesaw. So that's why Krishna doesn't say, whenever Dharma is in decay, oh, Arjuna, then I manifest myself. He wants to make it clear. <clears throat> he says, whenever Dharma is, whenever the righteousness declines, where there is decline in righteousness, and rise of unrighteousness, because that's what comes necessarily when there is decline in Dharma, <clears throat> then I manifest myself. With this, Krishna tells us two very important things also. Dharma is not constant. Sometimes in some periods of humanity, Dharma is extremely strong. Like people go by God. For example, at the time when the 12 apostles of Jesus were preaching Christianity, Christianity goes forward with leaps and bonds, although persecuted severely. People were killed. If you just say, I am a Christian, like somebody would take you to the Colosseum in Rome and say, are you a Christian? Yes. Then you go to the lions. It's as simple as that. And all it took was of you to say, no, no, leave me alone. I'm not. No, like then I can go home and continue my life. No. It was as simple as this. Yes or no. It was like a total expression of one soul. Those people felt that if they said no, they would defile their soul. Modern people would say, you can cheat, you know, that, that's the police. Lie a little bit to them because they are just the dumb police. And then you go home and do your prayer. Those people felt if I said no, then when I go home and make my prayer, I'm lost already. My prayer will not work anymore because I defiled my soul by lying on such a matter of principle. For those people, the principle was way more important than cheating or do your things. That's Dharma. That's a very powerful Dharma. Jesus came to the world. The world was perverted. The Egyptians were a dark spot on the map. The Gentiles, all the tribes, until Muhammad grouped them seven centuries later, they were a bunch of savages. The Jews themselves were decadent and a bunch of abusive manipuristic priests have taken over and they were just doing their own, playing their own agenda and playing friends with the king and with the Romans and everybody and doing their own political games. The Greeks were a decadent culture in which everything from sexual abominations till you name it were already there. Philosophical confusion was ripe. The Romans were an empire led by epileptics and schizophrenics. All the Tiberiuses and Caligulas and Neros and Messalinas and all the rest, they were severe mental patients, not average mental patients, but severely mentally ill. There is a medical study which demonstrates that from <coughs> Caesar, <coughs> from Julius Caesar, who was epileptic, 
the, which is minor, but it is considered a form of demonic possession in traditional medicine because the epileptic seizure looks like a demonic possession. And all the way till the last Roman of the, uh, when the fall of the Roman Empire, I forgot the name of the last imperator in Rome, only one emperor, Marcus Aurelius, was of sane mind. All the others, 35 emperors or how many there were in those three centuries and a half, all of them were severely mentally handicapped, like schizophrenic, perverted, borderline, bipolar, everything was there. And therefore in such a world, in such a bitter world where there is no, not a ray of light and everything is based on power, until today we know that the Roman Empire was the most vast killing machine. Like the, M, the, the armies of the Roman Empire did things which no empire ever equaled after them in, in terms of expansion and ruling and percentage of the known world and things like that. So in such a society which is so terrible and where Caligula made his own horse a senator and asked to be worshipped like a god and the list could continue, it's far from being over. Jesus comes with Dharma and then the, a vast amount of the population converts to Dharma. And it's exactly like you have a dialogue between smokers and non-smokers. Right now there comes a king who says, from today I wish smoking to be banned. And then you have the believers who go around and they are non-smokers. And they, all the time when they see a smoker they say you should stop from smoking. Our king has said, and the smokers would strike back bitterly because their vice is being attacked and then they are going to become really nasty if you take their cigarettes. It's exactly like we have an, a king who comes and says from today there is no more booze, the alcohol stops because people drink off their minds with alcohol, stop it, ditch it, burn all the vineyards down, destroy every production of alcohol, stop it, and then of course all the drunks will strike back in the name of the freedom or whatever they call it, but they will not like it. It is exactly with Dharma and Adharma. There comes a Dharma king like Jesus and says from now the Adharma is over. People have to live in virtue. And of course all the, the half of the population which is full of vices and thus demonized and possessed by the demons strikes back. It goes rabid. Everybody goes ape shit when one like Jesus comes because it attacks their vice-ridden nature. They cannot unfold their vices because now they came a clean one and he also has cronies, he also has minions who are going around in the world and say the Dharma king has come, the Dharma king has come, let's stop the vice. And then this is bound to create conflict until one side wins. Usually when spirituality is fresh, spirituality wins. Like eventually nobody can stop one like Jesus. Eventually nobody can stop one like Muhammad. Eventually no one can stop one like Krishna. These are in unstoppable because they are God they have, or they have the power of God behind them. And because they bring the truth and the human heart is with God. God is in the heart of man and the human heart resonates to the truth. And because of this everybody knows that Jesus is right. As much as you may hate the guy and his extremeness, still you have to admit that he is right and you cannot look in the eyes of Jesus. Like when he said, when they asked him, shall we stone to death this woman? 
And then he just told them one word. He said, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Nobody dared. In the moment when Jesus looked in their eyes and said, let the one of you that has no sin cast the first stone, everybody put their head down. Because Jesus was looking right into their hearts like God and said, I am God and let me, let me see the cheek of the one of you who says you've got no sins and you want to stone this woman to death. Nobody dared. They were a rabid mob. It's very difficult to control a mob. And yet Jesus controlled them with one word, just touching their heart, simply saying, no, ultimately, let me talk to you like God would. Who of you is without sin? And therefore, this is the function of the spiritual beings. They bring Dharma. He says very clearly, when Dharma is in decay and Adharma flourishes, when is Dharma on? Today, our materialistic society started decaying together with the Renaissance. Everything in the encyclopedias and in the modern culture tells us that until the 13th, 14th century, there were the so-called Dark Ages. But the funny thing is that even the Inquisition started in the 14th or 15th century, I forgot my history, after Martin Luther. The Inquisition was a response of the Jesuits and of the Catholic Church to the, to the spreading of the Protestantism and other, spread, other sectarian forms such as Lutheranism, Calvinism, and Lutheranism is Protestantism, and then Anglicanism. But if you will check your history books, Martin Luther lived in the 15th century. The end, Ignacio de Loyola, the Basque, soldier who became the founder of the Jesuits and where the Inquisition started, also lived in the same century or one century after. I kind of forgot again my timelines, but is there wrong? Therefore, in the 12th century, there was no Inquisition. That's just what stupid Hollywood movies tell you because they want you to hate the Christian church and to think that it was terrible all the time. There was no Inquisition in the 12th century. There was no Inquisition in the 8th century. What were the people doing in the 8th century, for example? In the 8th century, that was a century of Dharma. A lot of Dharma, because by the end of the 4th, 5th century, the Christian church became official and unified. There were still some sectarian offsprings of it, like the Arianism and other such things. But basically, there came a time of prosperity in which people could worship God the Christian way, because that's what they had, and there was nothing else. The trouble which the society had in the 7th century were just some internal strifes, because there were some offshots, some sects coming out like Arianism and the others, the iconoclasts and others, and the migratory people. These were the final centuries for the gods, Visigoths, and other migratory nations, which were coming and attacking, and there was no religious strife. Those people were just predators, migratory nations, who were coming on the back of the horse to rape and pillage and do that. But from a religious, spiritual standpoint, in the 8th century, the society was pretty unitary in the ex-Roman Empire, if you take it like this. There were no crusades. There was no split in Orthodox Church and Catholic Church. There was no splitting in the Church. There was no Inquisition. There were no burnings at stake. 
Everybody minded their own business. In, the church was not punishing you if you had a slightly different opinion. And people were going like the faith was very strong. It is described in the fact in the Acts of the Apostles in the Bible. How did it manifest? Like when Paul preached the message of Christ in a Greek city. Even the Greeks who are philosophers and like to argue and to, you know, split the hair and all the rest. Even the Greeks immediately accepted it. And when they accepted it, it is written in the Acts of the Apostles. They took all the books of magic, witchcraft, astrology and all that stuff and they burned it in public. There was no inquisition. There was just one man, Paul. Who simply said, now I'm teaching you the message from God. Until now you had this polytheistic Greek thing with your gods and so on. It's time to upgrade to the next level. The next level is that God visited us some 30 years ago. And I'm talking for him. I'm one of his apostles. Yeah? And the Greeks converted. And when they converted it was clear. Like why do you need? Because people today say... Oh, you know, it's so pity because much of the so-called magic and witchcraft, there were actually some wise women who were knowing a lot about chamomile and peppermint and herbs. Most of all, that's bollocks. It means you are listening to the propaganda of modern times. It's like 1984 of George Orwell. They can sell you any shit and you don't do research. At least in 1984, they were burning the past and modifying it constantly. So even if you search... You couldn't find a trace of it. Today, if you are really stubborn, you can go and do your own research. You don't need to believe me. Actually, you are never going to find some clean herbalism in the medieval times. That's poppycock. That's bollocks. Everybody who did a little bit of herbalism, they did spells, they did chants, they did things like this, which means it was magic. Turn it either way you want. It was sorcery. Witchcraft, magic. Now we are going to argue if it was black magic or gray magic or green magic or white magic or whatever shade of it it was. We can argue like this till the end of the days. Fact is that when the Greeks converted, at the same time, with no inquisition, with no institution, remember the church didn't even exist in that century. There was just Paul and Paul was taken to Rome and decapitated. And the Christian church was persecuted for another three centuries. So there was no authority of the church. There were no soldiers behind the church. There was no any power behind the church. On the contrary, the church was a shame and a scam. And you had to hide it because it was one of the most persecuted things. And this persecuted church, it came with the message of Paul, among others. He is one of the most illustrative examples. And what did the Greeks do? They took out of the library all the treatises on anything else and burned them out of their own free will. And why? Because they simply said, why, why do I need any text about how to invoke the fairies or the satires or how to pray to Zeus? Now we have Jesus who is God. Can't Jesus beat the salamanders and the fairies and Zeus and everything else? Or now we have here a book about the virtues of chamomile. It's lovely. Chamomile is lovely. But in what do I believe most? In God or in chamomile? When my daughter is going to fall ill, I'm, am I going to give her chamomile or fall on my knees and pray to God? Which is stronger? 
of the two. Do I believe in chamomile, in substances, in plants, or do I believe in God? Because if we really have faith in God, then you can fall on your knees, pray to God. God is almighty. All the chamomile in the world cannot equal one prayer. Therefore, they were right in this way. That was Dharma. That was a century in which the Greeks didn't have universities, didn't have hospitals, didn't have magic, astrology, herbs. There was just one thing. God. God was enough. You could solve everything with God. That's what's called Dharma. Dharma is a sort of a... Today, it would be catalogued as a sort of religious extremism. Because it's like, hey, only God and only God. What if I get bored? I want a little bit of magic. I want a little bit of something else. Because my mental monkey gets bored. The idea is, go and treat yourself. You are deeply sick. And we are not going to introduce smut in the society. Just because you are a monkey mind. And you get bored by being with God. Those who get bored by being with God, they are ill. And they should be treated. It's not we don't get the standard according to the lowest, but according to the highest. In this way, of course, that a lot of the religious extremism can be understood within some limits. Like you can see Buddhist religious extremism in Bhutan, which is criticized by all the democratic Western nations that why are they so closed? And there is not even television in Bhutan. No, but what's the great virtue of television? besides manipulating the masses and imbecilizing people with advertising and all sorts of things and giving the glorious cultural achievements of South American telenovelas to the masses. You know, it's like, where is the big achievement through that? No? And many people say television is the devil. No? This is what the Taliban's also said in Afghanistan. No? Take all your televisions and throw them out the window because you want to stay with prayer and with that. It's always very arguable. I cannot hold that standard for you because this is Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga, anything like this would be considered extreme simply because many people are demonized and for them that standard burns them. It's like painful. You cannot stay. It's exactly like somebody would make you live in a monastery from now till the end of your life. And then you say, I want to get out and party a little bit. No, it's not because the monastery is wrong. It's because you are not cut for the monastery. The monastery is too severe, too spiritual, too exclusive from this standpoint for you. And you would like some freedom. But the freedom means the freedom to be unreligious. The freedom means the freedom not to be so devoted and not to be so committed. Thus, while I am one which is saying you must have your freedom... God gives you freedom. I understand freedom as a principle. Remember that freedom can be misused. And that's one of the very dangers of freedom, which makes its beauty as well. That there are people who misuse their freedom and become Satanists or something. That's also a freedom. You have the freedom to become a Satanist. But in the big picture, that freedom is a really lousy, misinterpreted and misused freedom. It's the same here. Many people use the word freedom just to step out of spirituality because spirituality is too severe, too monotonous, too boring and the demon in you wants to do some nasty stuff from time to time. And when you want to do the nasty stuff, then you appeal to the concept of freedom. In the name of my freedom, please let me 
sin. Please let me err. Thus, of course, while, the, while one like Jesus would say, okay, knock yourself off, you know, it's like you want to bite the dust, bite the dust and see where it goes. It's, fi it's, not, it's not okay, but it is a must. Freedom is freedom. Nevertheless, freedom can be used as a dharma. And that's why here Krishna is very clear. Sometimes dharma is very powerful and sometimes dharma is very weak and then the ah dharma flourishes and then he says then i manifest therefore the avatars krishna himself and the avatars are those that fix the problem humanity by itself cannot maintain a high standard of spirituality because this planet is a school and the spirits which are incarnated on this planet they are not spiritual totally of course, metaphysically, we are all God and we are all spiritual. But when you look around at the war and torture and injustice and ugliness, you find it difficult to believe that everybody, starting from, I don't know whom, Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and the likes of them, they are God and they are doing what they do with the permission of God. And that's why what I'm trying to get to here is the following. The function of the avatars and it is from the avatars that we spiritual people learn these things the function of the avatars is to redress the plan it is exactly like humanity has a plan it's exactly like a production factory which has a production plan every day you must produce these are many units of whatever we produce here candles or cars or whatever it is and then suddenly the management which could be compared to shambhala or to the high angels the management notices they are behind the plan. They have gone under the plan. Like humanity would have to be this spiritual. But it has become this spiritual. And therefore the darkness has become a bit too much. Things are going really even lower than predicted. And then you have to send somebody down in the production unit to revamp, to revive the production. Like the, the suits send somebody to inspect what's happening down there, why is the factory not producing. Thus, the spiritual realms, they are sending somebody down here to give aspiration. It's like people are more materialistic than spiritual, unfortunately, and even when they inherit a religion, they cannot maintain it. It's exactly like a prayer wheel in a Buddhist temple. When you have a prayer wheel, you spin it. And it makes a nice sound and it looks nice and after 30 seconds it goes tuck, 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 tuck. That's exactly what's happening with the religion and spirituality. You get one like Krishna who comes and Arjuna and his brothers are moved and electrified and touched and they promise to be good and they promise to be righteous and they promise to put religion always first and to worship the Brahmins and to keep the spiritual standards of the society. And 500 years later, it has decayed. The, their followers and their descendants have forgotten. And then Krishna has to come again. It's like the whole humanity is peaks when Jesus and Krishna are coming of spirituality of Dharma. And then slowly, slowly valleys. Like humanity, unfortunately, is not even capable to keep the momentum. From time to time, God himself has to give a push to that prayer will to keep it running. 
that push is done by sending down avatars from time to time. That's why it is said that God sacrifices himself and that the world is created out of sacrifice. You'll see even Krishna mentions that. This is a form of sacrifice. Vishnu, instead of sitting quiet and witnessing the universe, has to manifest as the body of Krishna. Krishna is misunderstood, mocked. Then that was lucky because he was in a good environment at an earlier time of history. But when he comes as Jesus then it's not only just mocked and then it's plainly crucified and going to real hard levels. And therefore the divine comes repeatedly just to give a shove to the cosmic wheel, just to make the cosmic wheel spin again and bring it back to speed. And that's why the history of humanity, it's a history of ups and then downs. Every time when a great prophet like Muhammad or Moses or Rumi or others like them, when they come, they create a plus, a wave of aspiration. And everybody says, if Rumi can do it, then we all believe more into it. Then we all think it's possible. If Ramakrishna is there, Ramakrishna electrifies our souls. And then Ramakrishna dies. And then Vivekananda goes on for another 30 years. And then Vivekananda also dies. And then what's left? The Ramakrishna mission, which is an institution which also can do something. But where is the Ramakrishna of the 20th century? Where is the? No, it's not there. But then, of course, they appear somewhere else. There appears a Sri Aurobindo. There appears a Padre Pio in Europe. There appears a Swami Shivananda. There appears a 16th Karmapa. There appears a... Here and there, there appear again and again great spirits. And those spirits do at a much smaller scale, remember, they do what the avatars do. The avatars do it big, like the avatars produce tsunamis spiritually, and Swami Shivananda produces a little wave. It's, you cannot compare the effect of Swami Shivananda upon the spirituality of this planet with the effect of Krishna or with the effect of Jesus. Jesus and Krishna are the giants. They are because they are avatars. And then a lot of spiritual beings try to copy that at their own possibility according to the grace and the mission which they have received. But with this shloka, Krishna brilliantly defines the function of the avatara. He says clearly, avatars are coming only when the world is in shit. When the world decays spiritually, then there is need for an avatar. Look around. There is really need for an avatar these days. That's why people say Kalki avatar or Jesus or somebody is bound to come. Because the planet is screaming in agony. We have got back to all the sexual abomination of the Greeks. We have got back to all the religious lip service and hypocrisy of the Jewish priests. We have gone back to all the power play and manipulation and money and politics and wars of the Roman Empire. Only it's not the Romans who do it now. It's other empires. It's the Anglo-Saxon conglomerate that carries on the flame of war and imperialism these days. And the list continues. Like everything which we got in the time of Jesus... We got now and perhaps more. And therefore, if that was a vacuum, then definitely now we have quite a vacuum in spirituality. 
You got crazy new age cults and so-called fake religions. You got hysterical people preaching abominable or ridiculous things. You've got such a, even yoga is not yoga anymore. It's become a billion dollar fitness industry. It's like everything is upside down. Everything is perverted in all the religions, in all the social places and so on. And that's why, of course, everybody who can see, when you make a comparison of how was Rumi, how was Ramakrishna, which are the real spiritual standards, then automatically everybody can see we are far, far down the drain. And the question is like, how much can we continue going down the drain like this before the next revolution will happen? Before this planet produces, so to speak, because it's not the planet that produces it, it's from above, but before the cry of desperation, which the collective mind of this planet launches to God, will call upon the next divine incarnation on this earth to fix the things a little bit. How will it fix them? May not be happy, you know, it depends. If we, if Satya Yuga is coming, maybe we'll have a great time. But if Kali Yuga is still to go another 300 years, then it's not going to be funny. Because when Jesus came and fixed the things, it was with himself getting crucified, with 11 out of his 12 apostles getting martyrized, and with tens of thousands of men, women, children, and elders getting martyrized just for the only thing of saying that they believe that Jesus is God. And thus, of course, we shall see, but definitely, in terms of metaphysics, we know that a spiritual revival is necessary. We seem to live in some very comfortable times, but when you analyze and like spiritually, oh, but isn't it okay? Don't we start having indigo children and all this modern stuff and so on? A strict analysis of, spiritual, of spirituality and spiritual standards according to the standards instituted by a Buddha, a Muhammad, a Rumi, a Jesus, a Ramakrishna, a Krishna shows that we are actually in major trouble and indeed some revival is necessary. And that's why Krishna says simply, Dharma goes up and down in different continents at different places. Dharma has gone down even now, that's why I'm here, basically. And every time when Dharma is down and the Adharma is up, let's not forget that, because that's automatically the consequence of it, then I am reborn again to fix the situation. So Krishna basically is very megalomaniac. He says, I came to fix the world. The world is down the drain and I came to fix it. Which is, either he is mad or he is indeed what he says. And he continues in the shloka, in the verse number 8, by saying, to protect the righteous and destroy the wicked, to establish dharma firmly, I take birth age after age. Again, that's like a manifesto. It's like he says, this is my motto, this is my credo, this is my statement of intention, or whatever it's called today, a mission statement. This is the mission statement of Krishna. Whenever Dharma is down and Adharma is up, I am reborn again and again to protect the right for the protection of the good and the, for the destruction of the wicked and for the establishment of Dharma, of righteousness. I am born age after age. It's clear. Like he says, you know, it's a very clear statement. It's a very clear mission statement. 
when dharma is down, when dharma is up, and then he says something tough to protect the righteous and destroy the wicked, to establish dharma firmly, I take birth age after age. Let's read it again in case you didn't get it, because modern political correctness would soften it. This, there is a, this lack of Manipura, because only the ruling class is allowed to have Manipura and to screw everybody with money and with armies and with bombardments and with politics. But the masses are required not to have Manipura. So you have to have everything in a, as bland way as possible because people should not manifest too much temperament or be too snappy in any way. Krishna is. Krishna says to protect the righteous and destroy the wicked. Destroy the wicked. There is no compassion because you cannot fix the situation without destroying the wicked. If you come and fix the things, then the wicked are going to bounce back. The empire strikes back. The revenge of the Sith. No? That's what's happening. You have to wipe the Sith out. As long as the Sith knights are there, you cannot fix things yet. And that's why here there is no room for political correctness. Krishna is rational and he says, when you want to clean, I'm having this tree and it has some fruits which are still healthy and half of the tree is attacked by I don't know what swamp or disease of the tree. And he says, to save the clean apples and to burn out the wicked ones. Like if you do not burn the infected part of the tree, it will infect the other half of the tree as well. You have to stop it. And there is no other way of stopping it. Ah, of course, that when Jesus preached his message and the apostles gave their lives and then martyrs after martyrs gave their lives, then somehow the wickedness was marginalized. Like people who had this belief the spiritual people took over for a few centuries. And then, of course, slowly, slowly the momentum decreased and the evil sneaked back in in the public life and the evil sneaked back in in politics and in everything, in human lives and in the human institutions and all the rest. But at least the purpose of Jesus was reached to give to the world a thousand years of oxygen, you know, to give more spirituality. Every avatar knows that you cannot fix the planet forever. You, you periodically have to come and do the maintenance. God has to service this planet periodically. It will never work forever. Like why doesn't Jesus come and give one stroke and do whatever he has to do and then it should work smoothly for the next million years and stop bothering about this. No, it's a constant interaction. You can't have it go in one go. Nobody has found a solution to that yet. And that's why here economically it's clear. The economy of it is clear. To protect the righteous and destroy the wicked. I, Krishna, can protect the righteous. I become a great king. I raise big armies. And I say this is the militia of God. This is to protect the righteous. And then after I'm dead, after I'm dead the momentum is lost. And the wicked are just waiting for this to happen. And then they strike back. And therefore, there needs to be some culling. There needs to be some cleansing. You can never clean the weed in a garden completely. 
but you can have a spring campaign and a summer campaign or a spring campaign and an autumn campaign. In the spring campaign, we have to protect the righteous and destroy the wicked. The wicked are the weeds. So you just weed the garden mercilessly. And then the righteous will thrive for two, three, four months. And then the weeds are back because that's the nature of the weeds. And what do you do? You weed the garden once more. So the function of God is to cultivate the righteousness and to weed out the unrighteousness. Therefore, that's exactly what Jesus says. This political correctness is not there only that people are afraid of the fanaticism and who has the right to do this and who takes the decision of this. Because Jesus says, whenever a tree is going to be found bad, like not producing food, fruit, that tree is going to be cut and thrown into the fire. Jesus doesn't say, oh, let's be tolerant. Some people can't move their ass yet. Let's leave them there, sit in a corner and do their things. He's very clear. He produces lots of conflict. People are even annoyed because while people were kind of tolerating each other, now Jesus comes and says, are you white or are you black? And he says very clearly, until me, the society was so and so. But now the Son of Man, that's him, came and people will have to make a choice. Now that I came, the wheat is going to be separated from, I forgot what it's called, that black thing which infects the wheat, uh, that weed which is useless. And you have to always separate them. And he says, now that I came to the world, the wheat is going to be separated from the weed. Very tough. Like Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. But a sword, that sword is like, let's cut the things. This is white and this is black. This is very politically incorrect today, where some people have this mantra, which is a mantra of lack of Vishuddha Chakra, and it, which is a mantra of lack of Dharma. Everything goes. No, for Jesus, not everything goes. For Krishna, not everything goes. Everything goes... Is just a mantra of tolerance to sin. Let's close our eyes and pretend there is no sin. Pretend there is no adharma. Jesus can't close his eyes. He is not born for closing his eyes. Neither is Krishna. Krishna says clearly, I, I came here to redress the dharma. And unfortunately for those who believe otherwise, there is no way to promote the dharma except then to clean out the weeds a little bit. When you have... A garden that is full of weeds, you have to weed it. You cannot say, let's wait for one generation and educate the children very carefully so that we get a new generation of more virtuous people, but with the other ones, let, let them do live out their life and then they will die. And then, yeah, but they will not allow the children to be educated in virtue because they feel the demonic need to, pro to promote their own vices. Because they feel singled out, they feel isolated if they are the only vicious person, then everybody else is not. People who drink alcohol try to get non-drinkers to drink. People who smoke, they try to get non-smokers to smoke. People who have some sexual perversions, they try to get sexually non-perverted people to share into say their sexual perversions. It's always like this, like there is no respect of the borders there. The weeds 
never respect the borders. The weeds always would cross the borders. And that is why Krishna, unfortunately, is rough. And actually, you see him in action here. Krishna takes sides in a holy war. Krishna is on the side of Arjuna, and he seems the other, he says the other guys are wicked, and they have to be destroyed. Though your cousins are the weeds, and I am here precisely to wipe them out. If not you, somebody else will do it, but that's the will of God. This is very close to the concept of jihad, the smaller jihad of Muhammad. Like when the laws of God are disturbed, fight for the, world, for the laws of God, for the word of God. And that is apply, applicable in so many other ways. It's true that while Jesus comes with a different philosophy of the heart, like here Krishna uses with Arjuna more a language of Manipura chakra because Arjuna is a warrior. Jesus is the one who brings a language of the heart and he says the wicked have to be wiped out but you have to wipe them out with your own blood. Like you have to sacrifice yourself and they shall not prevail. And it takes a huge confidence to say well we don't wipe out the evil but we are just going to give up our lives and give our lives and give our lives and the pigs will abuse us all the time and all this swinery will continue and continue for three centuries and a half until finally our momentum will prevail because the spiritual merit generated by so much martyrdom will eventually win. It takes such a confidence. It takes such a surrender, such a belief. And again, from the heart, that was possible. Here, Krishna, echoing an older thing, I told you often, Jesus is unique. Jesus is a landmark. He is another avatar. And that avatar brought to the world the idea of forgiveness, love, sacrificing for others. These ideas did not exist before. At the time of Krishna, as wonderful as Krishna is, there does not appear for a single time in this or in the literature of the time the idea that one person can take upon them the karma of another person. Even Buddha, just 500 years before Christ, never says this. He says everybody has their own karma. Everybody has, you have to stop producing bad karma. Like don't do evil. Behave in a virtuous way. But Buddha never says you can share karma. You can pull karma. One who has less karma can take on his shoulders. And No. There is no compassion or transmission of karma. The first who comes with this is Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's one of the major contributions of Jesus in the spiritual history of this planet. That's why at the time of Krishna, which is way before, G before Buddha, this idea did not exist. The divine forces, Shambhala, whoever was coordinating spirituality on this planet, considered that, that at that time this teaching was not necessary. The humanity was in a different stage of its evolution, and because of this the humanity was following a spiritual teaching in which karma was individual. And that's why Krishna, even if he would want to go to the heart, he cannot give this solution. That let some of you sacrifice themselves and shed your blood and thus the planet will be purified and the weeds will somehow not prevail. Such as, let us create an alkaline acidity of the soil and then the weeds cannot grow in alkaline soil and slowly, slowly, in a couple of years, they will diminish considerably, blah, blah, blah. Like, let's do... He doesn't have that solution. Krishna is a 
direct gardener, a straightforward gardener. He says, if you want your garden to be, you have to weed it periodically. And I'm here to weed it. This reflects a pre-Christian mentality and even a pre-Buddha mentality in which people were more rough. The spirituality was more rough. That's why Krishna has nothing against the holy war. And in this war some people will die, many, many actually. And Krishna says, well, you can't make an omelette without breaking the eggs. Some eggs will have to be broken into this. And Krishna is okay with it. That's why remember, he says to protect the righteous and destroy the wicked. The wicked have to be destroyed. That's, that's the old, even the Buddhist judgment in medieval Japan. In medieval Japan in the 16th century when they were confronted with the first Christian missionaries reaching Japan, the samurais couldn't believe their ears because the Christians were preaching that you should forgive your enemy. And every samurai, all the samurais said the enemy has to be wiped out for good. Like this is a complete bullshit which contradicts with everything we learned from our ancestors until today. That you have, if you, that's what Lao Tzu says, in the art of war, in the art of war, Lao Tzu says in the moment when you got the power, do not forgive your enemy. Swipe it out, wipe the enemy out completely, because if you leave the slightest upshot of the enemy, they are going to build up revenge and you will always have to guard your back. And you, when you catch the moment, wipe out the enemy decisively to zero, to scratch. There is no, if you hold back, you are an idiot. If you are the emperor of China, and you went and did some, I don't know, conquered some kingdom, and then you forgive the descendants of that king, they are going to conspire against you sooner or later, and you have to kill them all. All. Like the enemy has to be wiped out to scratch, to rock bottom. Thus, that's exactly the same here with Krishna. Krishna say the wicked have to be wiped out as much as it is. Funnily enough, in the end of the Mahabharata, out of which Bhagavad Gita is a part, the wicked, Duryodhana and the others, they party in paradise. They are drinking Amrita in paradise. Like they have been forgiven. It's like you played the wicked. You have been caught into this. It has been a great play. We killed you in the process. And now you deserve your reward in heaven. It was all a theater happening on earth. And uh, Atman is immortal. Like Duryodhana and his brothers, who are supposed to be the bad guys, in the end of Mahabharata they are saved. They are celebrating in heaven. Which shows how relative all this thing is. Who is good? Who is evil? What is this and that? And they know. But still, he says, in what concerns Dharma Adharma, you have to destroy the wicked. To show that this is a constant in the Indian metaphysics and Krishna, Vishnu mysticism, Rama, Rama, who is the previous incarnation of Krishna, Krishna is number 8 and Rama is number 7, Rama, who was born some 2000 years before Krishna, Rama also is subjected, like if you want to read the life of Rama, of course most people think about Ramayana, but Ramayana is only one little part and it's a very uh, colorful episode where the wife of Rama, the virtuous Sita, is kidnapped by Ravana, the demon, taken to today's Sri Lanka. And then there is this legendary mythological war in which Rama and Rama, 
wipes out Ravana. Ravana has to be wiped out because he is the wicked in the process. But actually, if you want to read more about Rama, read in the Indian mysticism about who Rama was, and you are going to see Rama destroyed many things. There was a whole class of Kshatriyas gone wrong, which would say aristocrats or warriors gone selfish. Aristocrats, warrior, class, samurai, knights, or whatever you want to call them, who, have, who are not respecting the Brahmins and the normal order of the society, and who are basically like Manipura Chakra, proud Vanitos leaders, grounded in their own truth, in their own righteousness. And Rama is called Parashu Rama. Parashu is an axe, is a battle axe, is a weapon of war, and he's called Parashu Rama because Rama with his axe wiped them all out. He simply went like a ninja in the middle of the clan of those Kshatriyas and wiped them out. Did not convert them, did not preach to them, did not forgive them, did not sacrifice himself for them. He simply wiped them out, period. And Parashurama didn't wipe only that out. He wiped various other groups in the society of his time which were anti-dharma, a-dharma. This is, again, a very powerful thing. It doesn't, ever since Jesus, the message of God has been changed. Some people listen, some people don't. But you have to understand Krishna in the context of the yuga where he lived and where he was incarnated and of the things which were happening in those days. And that's why in those days, the laws of God, Jesus had not been born. This kind of teaching of forgiveness and self-sacrifice had not been given. Even Buddha had not been born with his story of compassion and forgiveness. And Krishna is in those times where things are more rough. And he simply says, I'm born to defend the virtues and to wipe out the wicked. And this is why I take birth age after age. Krishna says, I'm like the police of God. I am the terminator coming from God from time to time to terminate evil to clean. Of course, he will never clean it completely because a planet cannot exist completely out of balance. But he will decrease it below a certain limit and so that the good can prevail considerably and the seesaw will stay this way for a long, long time. He knows that 500 years later or 1,000 years later or 2,000 years later, the seesaw will again incline because less and less people will be spiritual and then the darkness will creep back again upon the society. It's a periodical thing which happens. And he continues, this will probably be the last he says in the shloka number nine, my birth and my activity are divine. By which he says it clearly, like don't try to judge me by human standards. Krishna cannot be judged by human standards. Either he came to kill the wicked, either he tells lies and manipulates in the war, or he is womanizing with a thousand gopis or whatever he is doing. He says my activity is divine. I'm sent by God. I am God doing this. Therefore, I am working by different standards. He says, my birth and activity are divine. You cannot condemn Krishna 
because Krishna has been part of a holy war, God has been part of that holy war, and there is nothing else to add to it. He who knows this in very essence, in, in the heart, on leaving the body is not reborn. He comes to me, O Arjuna. He basically says, if you believe this, he says, he who knows this in very essence, he who thus knows in true light my divine birth and action, he who knows, of course, it's not an intellectual knowledge. First, you need to learn about it intellectually, like some of you did hear this for the first time tonight. But after you know, you learn it, you hear it intellectually, you need to be it. That means you need to absorb it, you need to believe it as much as you believe that you are alive. It has to become part of your belief system. He who believes, he who knows this in essence, who believes this, on leaving the body is not reborn, he comes to me. This is the first time when Krishna mentions liberation from the physical life. He says, he gives an example, he says, he doesn't say only this way are you going to reach liberation. He just says that's one way. For example, he says, he who knows that I am God, basically Krishna says, he who knows that I, Krishna, am Vishnu incarnate, and my birth and activity are divine, and you can hold that in your heart like your faith, like your guiding light, like your lighthouse, that person when leaving the body, that means in the hour of death, when you leave the body, is not reborn. You will not go through the bardo and be prepared to be reincarnated. That person, he comes to me, O Arjuna. It's as simple as that. He means he goes to God because he just said, I am God. So he who thus knows in true light my divine birth and action, after having abandoned the body, is not born again. He comes to me, O Arjuna. Thus, here Krishna defines a way of enlightenment. That, of course, is a way of faith. And thus, this is a religion. This is purely based on faith. It's exactly like some Christian fundamentalists who say, do you accept Jesus as your savior? Then you are saved. It's a bit of the same idea. Here, this is the Hindu version of it. Do you accept Krishna as God? If you know that, when you die, you will be liberated. Realize that that being just a belief system, he says it will save you in the moment of your death. This is called in India, Ichamrityu, which means a liberation in the hour of death. That means you are not liberated alive. The opposite of it or the companion of it is Jivan Mukta. Jivan Mukta means you are liberated while alive. Example, Swami Shivananda was considered to be a Jivan Mukta, liberated while still alive and becoming a great guru, Mahatma Gandhi is considered to be a Mrityu Mukta because he never professed to be enlightened in his lifetime, but both Swami Shivananda and Sri Aurobindo, who are contemporaries with him, said that because he died the death of martyrdom in the service of God, he reached enlightenment in the moment of his death. That is, like Mahatma Gandhi, we can say, we can paraphrase it, knew that Krishna is divine in birth and activity, and knowing this essentially, believing it, he actually, when he died, 
he exclaimed, O Ram, O Ram, which is the name of Rama or of Krishna. So he ex exclaimed the name, he called the name of God. It's exactly like you'd say Jesus, Jesus or something in another environment. And then he was, he, he is not born again, he comes to me. Not only he is not born again, he comes to me. You see, he always makes it clear. If you would say he is not born again, you'd say that person might be roaming through the astral worlds. Not born again, but still existing somewhere in the astral worlds. Krishna makes it clear. He said, he is not born again. He comes to me. Well, if he comes to Krishna, if he comes to Vishnu, then it's not that he roams like a vagabond through the astral worlds. He is going to the kingdom of God. So, the idea is very clear. We will stop here tonight with this great sentence. Here Krishna, as you can see, very much like Jesus, like he says, simply believing in me can save you. Like Krishna is not an ordinary person. For example, Buddha does not say you have to believe in me. Because Buddha says, who am I to believe in me? I am a human being like you and like many others. And I have earned my right to nirvana slowly, slowly through 10,000 lifetimes of evolution. So Buddha says, believe in yourself. You are like me and you can do what I did. But Krishna is not Buddha. Krishna is God visiting the earth. And thus Krishna says, if you believe in me, it's like you believe in God. The same thing was said by Jesus, identically. Jesus says, he who believes in me, even if, should, if he should be dead, yet shall he still be alive. Like, that's a perfect similitude, and it's based on belief. It's a religious thing. It's a power which other lesser spiritualists do not have. They are not endowed with the same amount of grace as one like Krishna, who speaks from the position of God in a human body. It is for this reason that the teachings of Krishna, as well as the teachings of Jesus, have a special value. Like, of course, we love the teachings of Swami Shivananda. Of course, we love the teachings of Svatmarama in Hatha Yoga Pradipika. But, of course, we love the teachings of Patanjali in Yoga Sutra. But when you deal with Krishna, when you deal with Jesus, you deal with something else not with human beings who wrote words of wisdom or who spoke words of wisdom. Let us stop for tonight and let's remain in a bit of interiorized contemplation for a few moments so that we allow the peace to descend and the message of Krishna to be absorbed, after which we can stop and part for tonight. A few minutes of meditation to integrate the truth as expressed by Krishna.
And that will do. With this, we can stop for tonight. Namaste to all of you. We'll meet in the next satsang.